Hi, I'm Peter Adamson, and you're listening to the History of Philosophy podcast, brought to you with the support of King's College London and the Leverhulme Trust, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview with Tony Long, Professor of Classics and Affiliated Professor of Philosophy at University of California, Berkeley. Hi, Tony. Thanks for coming. Hi, Peter. So what we're going to be talking about in this interview will be the self in Hellenistic philosophy as a kind of crowning moment for this whole series of episodes on Hellenistic philosophy. Can you begin by telling us just what you mean by the self in this context? The best way to start, I think, is from the Greek word psyche, psyche, uh, which has given rise to our word psychology. To go back to the very beginning of our recorded literary history, in the poems of Homer, in the Iliad and the Odyssey, psyche is what leaves the body uh, when the person dies. Psyche in the Homeric poems is something like a ghost, except that the ghost that survives the death of the body is what we might call an ex-person. The reason I bring this up is because uh, self, I think, in the Greek context that we're going to talk about, is primarily thought of as something like the person, the character, rather than the fully embodied human being. It's an aspect of the human being, what we might call the mental, the moral, the psychological aspect of a human being. Just as I might say, um, John is a, an amazingly strong character, but um, you know, did you know that he's um, you know, been a terrible asthmatic all his life? So when we draw distinctions between body and mind, self is going to f- figure on the mind side. And would you say that for most speakers of Greek, the word psuche would have meant something more like that and something less like soul, which is how it's usually translated <laughs> in, say, Plato and Aristotle? Yeah, the problem with soul, of course, in English is that we don't really have a, a contemporary use for soul. We talk about soul music. Um, we can still use old expressions like keeping body and soul together, but in everyday life, soul has really vanished. Uh, when I was a student, I was asked to write a paper on um, psuche in Plato without using the word soul, which was quite a good exercise. So I would say that in traditional Greek, uh, and that they, in philosophers in, inherit this, there's just, there, the idea that there are body predicates, we could say, uh, to do with uh, physique and uh, stature and weight and so forth, and there are what we might call mental predicates to do with intelligence and personality, and those figure on the side of psuche. I guess that in the context of Hellenistic philosophy, that contrast might be somewhat problematic because, of course, the Epicureans and Stoics are materialists. Right. Thus, they wouldn't think that there was, or at least it might seem that they wouldn't think there was a distinction to be drawn there between the mm-hmm. mental and the physical. So is that would they handle that problem by saying, well, by the physical, we don't necessarily mean the body? There might be the soul, which is physical, and also the body, which is physical. Yes, I, 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 that's, that is a possible problem that one might have if one was a very strong um, materialist, physicalist. One might say all there ever, ever is to a human being are physical states. But even, I think, the strongest materialist is going to have to recognize that we need in everyday life to distinguish between um, things like feelings, uh, which are, say, emotions on the one hand, 
and pains and pleasures which are physical on the other hand. So I think we're, we're not going to ever be able to get away with some sort of distinction as such between body and mind, body and soul. Um, and what do the Hellenistic schools then bring to the conception of self that we don't already find in Plato and Aristotle? Good. Let me just say a word about what I do think we find in Plato and Aristotle, because I think that tends to push the discussion in a certain direction. Um, in the early dialogues of Plato, uh, where Socrates, of course, is the principal character, uh, we find Socrates, for instance, in Plato's Apology, telling the Athenians that uh, he's God's gift to the city because the city needs someone to tell them that what's much more important than making money and looking after their reputation is caring for justice, and he says there, and caring for the soul more than the body. So we, I'm using the word soul, the word psyche. Uh, this has been picked up by the um, uh, modern philosopher uh, Michel Foucault uh, uh, in what he called, with a rather literal uh, translation of the Plato, care of the self. So to get now to the Hellenistics, I think what's happening in Hellenistic philosophy, perhaps partly because the p political structures of ancient Greece have ceased to be as um, effective for people's sense of their own identity, uh, perhaps a certain sense in which people are being thrown back upon what, to beg the question, is themselves. Mm. And the philosophers pick up on that by getting into very detailed um, analysis of what kind of uh, state of soul, mind, uh, spirit, whatever we want to translate this word, is going to make for the happiest, the most effective life. And one of the things that they put a lot of emphasis on would be the idea of being autonomous, right. having control over yourself. Absolutely. And another way to try to look at uh, analysis of the self is to think of the self as that with which you identify. A very famous modern book by the uh, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor called Sources of the Self. And when you study this book, what you find Taylor is really talking about is um, self in the sense of what what makes my life worthwhile? Um, what could I say at the end of my life? I'd been here for uh, what do I? What would I be willing to live or die for? So the net sense identifying with uh, the Hellenistic philosophers are very concerned about coming up with what they see as a, a valid. Um, value system and, and, the, and anchoring the self to a certain set of values. It's interesting that they share that approach given that they have such radically different ideas of what's valuable. So the Epicureans are hedonists, obviously. They think that what will bring them happiness is <clears throat> maximizing pleasure, whereas the Stoics think that pleasure doesn't matter at all, really, and that the only thing that matters is virtue. But you're saying that they share some kind of commitment to an idea of the self, which is really the same idea in both Stoicism and Epicureanism? Well, of course, Peter, you're totally right in drawing very sharp contrast between the, the officially hedonistic Epicureans and the, um, the Stoics who officially uh, maintain that pleasure is entirely unimportant to the, uh, the quality of a life. But when you probe more deeply into these two philosophies, uh, you're going to find quite a lot of features that they have in common which I think are very relevant to the question we're exploring, uh, the question of the, um, the kind of selfhood 
that will make for a successful and happy life. And Epicureans are going to agree just as strongly as Stoics uh, that uh, uh, a life which was not grounded in some sort of valid and truthful understanding of the nature of things uh, is going to be an impoverished life. Uh, that, that we need, in other words, to have something we can call a rational life, a life which is grounded upon some defensible system of values, and also a life in which we feel we are in control of, of what we are, where we're going. So to give an example from the Epicurean system, while the Epicureans, of course, insist that nothing is per se good except pleasure and nothing is per se bad except pain, they have a very radical way of trying to analyze what kind of pleasures and what kind of pains are the things we should be concerned about. And uh, what we typically think of as a hedonistic life, a, a voluptuary life, or an Epicurean life, in the way the word Epicurean has uh, come down through our own culture, is the, quite the reverse of the very austere life that Epicurus himself advocated. Uh, as you remember, he he said that if he had, a, you know, I think it was a, bit of cheese and um, and bread, he would feel he was having a, as, as much as a feast. As long, I mean, that the, the, the crucial feature here for the Epicurean being to control one's desires um, and maximize one's um, autonomy in that way. And I guess that because they're hedonists, the reason why they would place value on self-mastery <coughs> and autonomy and self-control mm-hmm. couldn't be that these things are intrinsically worth pursuing. It must be because... They think that self-mastery will prevent you from undergoing pain, for example. So if you're in control of your own life, then, for example, you might need, not need to worry about what will happen to you because you're in control. Yes. And so it's a way of forestalling pain rather than putting the value on self-mastery as such. Do you think that's fair? The, yeah, the, bottom, the official bottom line would be exactly as you say. I'm not sure in the, in the last resort whether the Epicureans are entirely consistent. There are two areas, I think, where critics have perhaps said that they're, they're really pushing the limit here as far as hedonism is concerned. One is over the theory of friendship, because the Epicureans seem to say that what we need friends for in the first instance is our own self-advantage. Friendship begins with utility. But friendship, according to some Epicureans, can then flower into something which is valuable for its own sake, even to the point that an Epicurean is prepared to die for his own friend. Actually, then, if you think about the Stoics, there's a problem maybe in Stoicism as well, something I haven't really talked about much in the podcast so far, which is how the Stoics think they should relate to other people. Mm -hmm. Because in the Stoics, especially, I guess, the Roman Stoics, you have this great emphasis on the idea of the agent's autonomy and their independence. Yet the Stoics also seem to want to say that it's important for us to have relationships with other people, and not merely because it would be vicious to treat other people wrong, but also because there's some actual value to the relationships we have with other people. Is that right? Yes. Seneca is interesting in this regard. Uh, He's perhaps, of all the um, Stoics who survive, the one who has the deepest and most interesting things to say about friendship. Uh, On the one hand, and this picks up on your first point, the Stoics are very concerned to insist that if you can truly live the Stoic way of life, all your reasonable desires are going to be satisfied. You are self-contained. You're self-sufficient. You won't won't be um, having to look over your shoulder all the time to... uh, uh, think about things you're missing out on. So, for instance, he says that the, the wise man, the wise man being the Stoic ideal, 
uh, even on a desert island, would be um, completely happy. But does that mean that he he wouldn't prefer to have friends? No, it doesn't mean that he wouldn't prefer to have friends. He would prefer to have friends not because he needs them, but because he has. If he has the opportunity to have them, then the friend and his own uh, virtues would somehow. Um, set up a kind of symphony. Uh, it's, it's as if um, friendship is a requirement of Stoicism, not in the sense that you need a friend in order to uh, fulfill wants that you, uh, you have, but the true Stoic life is, is a sociable life. And of course this, is, this would be, I think, true of all ancient philosophies. Um, we might want to consider about Plotinus here, might be a, somewhat different, but, but Stoics, Epicureans, Platonists, Aristotelians are, are all... Um, very much more concerned, I think, than modern moral philosophers are, uh, where the typical question is, what's the right action? Uh, Much more concerned with what would make mine a a fulfilled life. I guess that you just mentioned Aristotle, and I guess that there's an interesting possible contrast between the Stoics and Aristotle here. I mean, you just said that the Stoics would encourage us to have friends because we could set up some kind of symphony yes, yes. of virtuous action. Yes. That sounds a lot like Aristotle. Yes, yes. But on the other hand, it's hard to imagine Aristotle saying, well, look, in the last analysis, friends are indifferent, but we should prefer them the way that we should prefer mm-hmm. health. So are the Stoics really just going to say that a friend is a preferred indifferent the way that money or health might be? No. The material we have on, on, on Stoic friendship suggests that true friendship... Uh, is actually a good, even in the, in the strict Stoic sense. The strict Stoic sense is that the only things that can be strictly good are virtues and things that are related to virtue. Um, so virtuous character. Uh, and a, a true friend for a Stoic would have to be another person with a virtuous... If you yourself had a virtuous character, uh, how wonderful that would be, uh, <laughs> your friend would also, to be a true friend, would also need to, to, to have a virtuous character. And in that sense, they say that friends are external goods. And I wonder what that could mean, because surely all goods for a Stoic are strictly internal. Well, I think it means that they're external in a very literal sense. You and I are external to one another. In that sense, the friend is an external good. But to be a good friend, he has to have the same kind of virtues that you have. And so this comes back to my symphony point. There's going to be a kind of congruity of minds. And the notion is that the true, a true friend, and this would go across all, I think, the schools, a true friend will be uh, someone who can benefit you, not, not in the sense that you're, you, know, uh, you, you need them to, say, uh, augment your bank balance, but benefit you in a much deeper sense that you can feel you're gaining in um, uh, amity and... Uh, other psychological goods from from friendship, uh, and it's only virtuous friends who could therefore help each other, because virtue is the only th- virtue intrinsically is something that is beneficial to you. Maybe we could extend that to look at something I have something else I haven't talked about a lot in the podcast, which is political philosophy mm-hmm. in the Hellenistic period, because certainly in Aristotle there seems yes. to be a very close connection Absolutely. between friendship and political yes. union. Now, the Epicureans famously aren't very much in favor of political engagement, so maybe we could focus on the Stoics. How would they extend this idea of virtuous friendship 
into the idea of political union or political action, or would yes. they not do that? I think, uh, yes, I think they, they would extend it. Uh, people often, I think, misunderstand the Stoics because the Stoics were rather in the habit of trying to divide the world into two categories of persons, um, the tr- truly virtuous and the non-virtuous. And then they got into paradoxes because they said, well, perhaps there never have been any truly virtuous people, so everybody is non-virtuous. And so then if you say, well, the only true friends can be virtuous friends, there are no friends. Yes, there are texts which put things in an extreme way like that, but I think this is meant to be sort of challenging rather than the end of the story. Uh, And so there can be gradations of friendship, just as in Aristotle. Aristotle talks about utility friends, pleasure friends, and virtue friends. So the Stoics would agree that just ordinary people can have friendships of a certain kind, and, and no doubt what would make those friendships true friendships would be in some sense approximating to the ideal friendships. And in this sense, uh, political friendships uh, uh, would be, of course, one, perhaps a lower form of friendship, but they would be a, certainly a necessary thing for society to work at all. They have to be social groups and uh, bondings between people. And in fact, the Stoics even sometimes talk about being citizens of the universe. Yes, right? absolutely. And so that to some extent there must be a feeling of union with not just all other humans, but with everything. Oh, absolutely. And so, it, But it just tails off so that I have a greater... If I'm an Athenian, I should have a greater feeling of union with other Athenians absolutely. than I do to people from outside Athens. And ultimately, and again, this of course is again a very different, I think, way from looking at um, how we relate to um, uh, things than, say, in Christianity. I mean, to say you're a friend of God would perhaps almost seem impious in traditional Christianity, uh, whereas that comes as a very natural thing to the Stoics. Does this actually have any concrete political ramifications? I guess what I mean by that is, does it tell us what a Stoic-minded politician would actually do? Or does it just say, well, when you're in political affairs, bear in mind that you have this kinship to other people? Uh, Good question, and and, and an answer I can give in in some depth, I think, by reference to Marcus Aurelius. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, as many of your listeners may know, uh, was was himself, of course, not only the most powerful figure in the Roman world in the second century of our era, uh, but he was also um, a really committed Stoic, and um, we have his own reflections on what it was to be a ruler and a Stoic ruler. And of all the ancient Stoics, he is the one who emphasizes what he calls one's social or political nature. Uh, he seems to sit, I mean, Aristotle had already said that human beings are political animals, meaning political not in the sense that they want to get into parliament or something like that, but politikos in the Greek sense, being a member of a polis. And it's fascinating, I think, therefore, that the Roman emperor, I mean, who probably in many ways was an incredibly lonely figure, was at the same time someone who had this intense feeling, not of sort of being bonded in the friend sort of uh, well, hail fellow well met sense to other people, but that but that this is his role. His role is to be um, uh, uh, sociable to people, fi- finding out the best what would be in their interests. So, in this sense, I think of all ancient philosophies, uh, Marcus Aurelius perhaps. Would, would come closest to someone we might think of as, um, as a truly you know, benevolent person. Uh, the 19th century English uh, essayist Matthew Arnold described Marcus Aurelius as perhaps the noblest figure 
uh, in literature, and then went on, I think, rather to spoil it by saying, if only he'd, he could have had the benefit of Christianity, how much better he'd have been off. But, uh, anyway. An idea that would not have appealed to Marcus no, himself. No, indeed, I guess. indeed he didn't, no. I guess one other thing that springs to mind here is that if you are committed to this idea of kinship with all other humans, you yes. might think that one particular ancient institution, namely slavery, yes. is something that is pretty questionable. Yes. Stoics, of course, have an interesting way of looking at this. Well, both both schools do. I mean, let's just start with the simplest. To mention the Epicureans. Um, Epicurus, of course, founded uh, his school as a, as a garden community, and then after his death, other such communities spread up in the Mediterranean world. And one of the interesting things about those communities was that they admitted women and slaves, as, as, as it were, as full members of those communities. Um, in the case of Stoicism, uh, Stoics liked to take traditional words like slave or uh, 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 wise or foolish and give them a special kind of colouring. So Stoics want to say that anybody who is not trying or is not succeeding in being a, a, a Stoic is actually a slave. It doesn't matter. They could be the freest and wealthiest person in the world. If they are not in control of their desires, if they're in thrall to uh, needs and other you know, impulses, then in that sense they're self-enslaved. Mm-hmm. And so that, that way the chattel slave could be a free man and the, and the non chattel slave could be a slave. The emperor could be a slave. Exactly. And in fact, Epictetus often yes. addresses his hearers as yes. slave. Yes. As kind this of of course goes right back, I think. The origin of that is, is already uh, Socratic, or at least Plato's Socrates in the Gorgias, where the tyrant is supposed to be the least you know, free of men. Before we finish, I should try to get the last of the main Hellenistic traditions in, namely the skeptics. And I guess you might think that the skeptics would have very little to say on this topic of the self because they don't have anything positive to Mm -hmm. say about any topic just by the nature of their philosophical persuasion. But it seems to me there is a question here because the skeptics, in a way, are, you might say, alienated from themselves. Mm -hmm. They're walking around uh, acting like normal people, seeming to have beliefs, and yet they claim not to have any beliefs. Yes. So do you think that the skeptics, in a way, have a problem with some kind of uh, dissonance or tension within the self? It might appear that way. Uh, the, the question, I think, is quite complicated, because when we say that the skeptic has no beliefs, uh, then there's a question of precisely of what we mean by a belief. The skeptic, um, or skeptic ideal, is a life without belief, but in a rather special sense. The sceptic doesn't think that he is in a position or she is in a position to get to anything like uh, the ultimate nature of things. And in that sense, we should suspend judgment about, uh, say, is there such a thing as the real good or is there such a thing as the real bad, in a way that Plato would say that there was, probably the Stoics too. Uh, So what are we left with? But Well, we're still left, according to the sceptics, with certain um, inalienable feelings, uh, what they call pathé. We can do nothing about those. If you say, well, I want to rationalise my feelings, I think the the sceptic will say, well, you just have to go along with your feelings. In that sense, these can be a guide to living. You drink when you're thirsty, you feel cold in the snow, but you don't say feeling cold in the snow is good or bad. You don't say drinking when you're thirsty is good or bad. It's just something you do. So in that sense, the sceptic may seem to be 
following in their instincts, what we might call our instincts, rather than trying to live a, live a rational life. The Stoics, though, often say that the pathe, these feelings, yes. or yeah, these feelings or emotions that we have, are not part of ourselves. Yes. They're something external, they're something that we stand in judgment over. Mm-hmm. Are the skeptics then objecting to that and suggesting that we should identify more with our feelings, or are they accepting the idea that we have this detachment with respect to our feelings, but that there's nothing else for us to do other than just let these things affect us and be at their mercy. Okay, good. Let's start with your point about the Stoics. And the Stoics, I think, have a slightly more complicated view than uh, that might have suggested, namely that uh, even the most committed and um, successful Stoic uh, will still um, start if there's an earthquake or... um, uh, feel cold in the snow. I mean, there's nothing he can do about that. That, that There's just an, an irreducible uh, physical reaction. What the Stoic will try to avoid doing is then um, simply in, uh, committing a judgment to those feelings uh, without reflection. Um, and that's where Stoic rationality comes in. Uh, the Stoic won't think that there's anything rational about having these feelings, uh, uh, and indeed, it will then be irrational on the Stoics' part just to let your judgment go along with those feelings. I think there's an interesting question here about the, the skeptics. Um, a skeptic perhaps cannot officially um, claim to be following reason, because if he were, then you'd have to ask him to define what reason is. On the other hand, in the sense in which I think the skeptic does think of himself as being uh, almost hyper-rational, in the sense that what is irrational for, for, the, for the skeptic is to think that you know things when you don't know them. And so in that sense, he, the, the stoic suspension, the skeptic suspension of judgment is quite an arduous uh, thing. It's not, it's not actually, perhaps I'm a bit misleading before when I said it, it, it would amount to simply going along with your feelings. Because after all, you might hear, let's say you've, got, you've gone to listen to a stoic professor this morning, and he was pretty good, and then you listen to an Epicurean skeptic uh, professor this afternoon, and he was pretty good. And you, and so which way do you go? And the, the skeptic way is to then try to distance yourself from both these positions by coming up with counter-arguments and in that way suspending your judgment. And what's that going to leave you with? Well, ideally, it will leave you with a perhaps a sort of mental blank at the level of theory, but all the normal human reactions. And, and then there's a little bit more to be said about that because skeptics recognize that how we react and behave in the world very much depends upon our own culture. And so in certain cultures, uh, the, the seemingly natural thing to do will be X and, and other, otherwise it would be not X. Um, and so, so we, you sort of, when in Rome, go along with the Roman way. And, and that may sound a little bit sort of evasive, and I think there's a lot more we could say about that, but uh, that's the official line, that um, we, we, we follow the guidance of our feelings and our cultures. And so the upshot of that then is that what you were saying at the very beginning, that Hellenistic philosophy is committed to the idea that we're trying to care for the self, yes. is something that the skeptics would go along with as oh, well. Oh, yes, I think so, yes. They might have a bit of a problem about saying what the self is. <laughs> right. But then I think we still, we still have that ourselves. Right. Uh, <laughs> Good point. Yes. Well, speaking of taking care of people, uh, next time my topic is going to be 
medicine and ancient philosophy. But for now, I'll just thank Professor Long for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Peter, for having me. And join me next time on the history of philosophy without any gaps. Mm-hmm.